We're all good. Yeah, we're all good now. (laughs) So um, today we're going to be talking about Iran. And one of the main reasons that Nina and I decided to do this show on Iran is that Brattleboro Solidarity is starting up a study group. Mondays in March from 6 to 8 at the Brattleboro Memorial Library. We're hoping that people from the community will come join us. And we're going to be learning about Iran's history and culture. The U.S.-Iranian relations. You know, this is something, Nina, just to pause. I had to keep on saying in my head, mm-hmm. Iran, 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 because we hear so much in the news. Iranian regime. Iran. Oh, oh, oh ouch. Yeah, yeah right? Okay. <laughs> my yeah. kids didn't even know what I was talking about when I say Iran or oh, Iraq. Because really? all they know is Iran and Iraq. Wow. Yeah. So anyway, sorry. <laughs> Get that over with, done with. So along with the U.S., Iranian relations. We're also going to be learning about how to resist war against Iran. I think that's our main role here in the U.S. is to learn how do we stop our government from um, going to war with the rest of the world. So, um, you know, Nina, I just had a question for you, and this is um, spontaneous. But sure. What What were you taught about Iran growing up, or what have you been taught outside of your own personal study? Right. Um. Gosh, I so I don't remember, maybe my early 20s, for some peculiar reason, I was just interested in Iran. I got, I mean, I was already like in the crowd of people who counter-narrative was like the norm. So I guess I just started my own study, but probably nothing. I learned nothing. And I think, I mean, I was quite young when... Um, uh, the Iranian hostage situation happened. Um, so, I mean, being so young, I don't remember those things, but I do remember just like going out on my own and, and learning about the history and about Iran. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, even though I wouldn't have been able to locate Iran on a map, I knew it was an enemy growing oh, up. Oh, uh-huh. you know? And I feel like that's very true of a lot of people here in the U.S., um, that there's this blind support for U.S., And if the U.S. says, um, and we'll get into this more in the show, but the narrative that's created around Iran in order to profit off the oil, in order to um, maintain U.S. dominance in the region, means that, one, we don't learn the history, two, we don't learn anything about the Iranian people, and three, we learn that they're the enemy. Right, which allows the public not to resist war, like, it just like oh, okay, well we're gonna go to war because they're our enemy. So um, that that's definitely the thrust of why we feel or we think that um, we should be more aware of the history, particularly of U.S. intervention in Iran. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to say one more thing about the study group, Nina. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just um, when people hear study group, they often think that that's not action, mm-hmm. and I feel like the very um, that point of studying is to inform us as to organize and support actions against war and to support actions against sanction really um, in order to build true solidarity with the Iranian people we in the U.S. must study the history and the current relations beyond the dominant narrative of the western media and without that study our actions are not as powerful Mm -hmm. because they're not informed by the current reality and the historical reality as well. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, okay. Are we going to start up? So we're going to um, start by playing um, a clip from Al Jazeera. Um, what does 
Iran want? What does Iran want? Tensions between the U.S. and Iran have escalated ever since Trump became president, sparking a media frenzy and TikTok videos about World War III. The memes may be new, but the tensions aren't. Iran. 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 If you watch the news or listen to the U.S. government's rhetoric, it may seem like the only thing that Iran wants is war. We're going to look at some of the crucial events that have shaped Iran to what it is today and what the world looks like from Iran's point of view. We want Iran to simply behave like a normal nation. When Mike Pompeo comes out and says that Iran needs to act like a normal country, these sorts of things are, are taken as showing the hypocrisy of, of the American administration. This is Nargis Bajogli, and she's a professor of Middle East Studies at John Hopkins University. As an Iranian researcher, Bajogli has a pretty good understanding of what the Iranian state and ordinary Iranians want, which, to be clear, can be different things. But more importantly, she understands the context around what Iran wants. The Iranians want to be seen as um, a country of people that have aspirations. Any other society that's sort of under this much uh, international pressure, economic pressure, military pressure, uh, they, they sort of want the space to be able to breathe. They're trying to live their lives like folks in other parts of the world. In order to understand why it seems like Iran and the U.S. have been in opposition for so long, one needs to sort of go back in history a little bit. Some of the main events that have shaped Iran's mo modern politics are the 1953 coup, the revolution of 1979, uh, the Iran-Iraq war of the 1980s, the um, downing of the Iran air passenger plane by U.S. forces over the Persian Gulf. The 1953 coup is, uh, is very significant. In 1950, Iran's prime minister at the time, uh, Mohammad Mossadegh, was the first third world leader in the world to nationalize his country's natural resources, which in the case of Iran was oil. And at that time, it was really controlled by the British. And he ended up basically kicking out the British. The CIA, with the help of the MI6, ended up uh, conducting the CIA's first coup uh, in 1953 against the Iranian prime minister. The was brought back uh, into power by the United States, it really be shifted what a lot of folks in Iran thought as far as who actually ends up holding power in Iran. Under the Shah, Iran was an authoritarian autocracy which survived because of U.S. backing. There was this belief that because of the way in which the Shah had aligned himself with the United States, that they really had no chance at uh, determining sovereignty over their own country. So once the revolution happens and it takes this very anti-imperialist stance, American policymakers begin to feel that they lost Iran, uh, that they lost the, the, the biggest ally that they had in the Middle East because it really was this um, uh, this massive revolution from below that ended up completely toppling the existing political and social structure. So from that moment forward, the way in which Iranians had viewed the U.S. is really through the lens of 1953. And the 1979 revolution needs to sort of be seen as a continuation of that national liberation struggle to get away from being under the auspices of the United States. These two events were a signal that Iranians wouldn't accept their fate being influenced by outside powers and that they were demanding sovereignty over their own country. 
The revolution was initially supported by many leftists and liberals. But the power struggle that followed saw the triumph of forces loyal to Ayatollah Khomeini, the supreme leader who was both the religious authority and commander-in-chief, and they set about eliminating their rivals. A few months after the revolution in November of 1979, students who had aligned themselves with Ayatollah Khomeini went into the American embassy and took American hostages because they were afraid that the U.S. would stage another coup in Iran or to sort of do away with this new revolutionary government. The U.S. imposed its first set of sanctions on Iran that November. And then, in 1980, something profound happened to Iran that not just plays a pivotal role in how the country views itself, but also how politics has played out in the region till today. The Iran-Iraq War. It was the longest conventional war of the 20th century, and it ended up significantly uh, realigning the geopolitics of the region. The Iran-Iraq War was their first really foray into understanding how the United States fights proxy wars. Saddam Hussein's Iraq was heavily supplied uh, by the United States as well as other Western powers. It's important to mention another player in the war, Saudi Arabia. You see, the Islamic Revolution of 79 established a theocracy in Iran that directly challenged Saudi Arabia's influence in the region. Unsurprisingly, the Saudis weren't too happy about that. So they bankrolled Iraq in the eight-year-long war. The aftermath of the Iran-Iraq war left a very, very large veteran population. Many of those veterans end up sort of coming into uh, positions of political power. And since then, the relationship between the U.S. and Iran has been complicated. In 1988, the U.S. military shot down an Iranian commercial jet, killing all 290 people on board, including 66 children. And we're still feeling the impact of this 2002 speech by George W. Bush. States like these and their terrorist allies constitute an axis of evil. That pushed Iran deeper into not only feeling isolated, but also betrayed since it had actually cooperated with the U.S. during the invasion of Afghanistan after 9-11. And in 2005, the election of hardline nationalist and veteran of the Iran-Iraq war, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, didn't help either. During his presidency, he pursued a more confrontational path on Iran developing nuclear energy, leading the U.S. to hit Iran with more sanctions. What ends up happening is that it, it hurts the general population in very significant numbers, but it does not really do anything to the political elite of the country. There's a lot of economic corruption and mismanagement from within the system itself. Everything that Iran has gone through in the past, from coup to the sanctions to the massive public protests against the Iranian state, has directly influenced the country's strategy on how it behaves in the region. Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on WVEW LP Brattleboro, Brattleboro's community radio station. Um, Indigo Radio is hosting a study group about Iran and how do we in the U.S. act in solidarity with Iranians. And so we're um, hosting this show today, Nina and I, uh, in order to um, introduce the history of Iran. And what we just heard was an AJ Plus video, What Does Iran Want? We'll post the whole video up on our Facebook. Um, and I think instead of Nina going through each of the different elements from what we just heard, mm -hmm. I think we'll incorporate that in the show as we continue to go on. Sure. Um, but before we do move on, I'm just wondering if there's anything that really stood out to you watching and listening to that video. 
Um, I mean, the I, I think like understanding the context of um, of of how Mossadegh was overthrown um, just really, I think, set the stage. And we that's the thing is that most people don't know that. And it's just such a decontextualized understanding of Iran, you know, that the U.S. had nothing to do with it. But we have everything to do with how Iran and the region continues to be shaped. So, yeah. Yeah. And I really do think that um, contextualizing Iran-U.S. relationships will help us understand what the purpose of the Western narratives that have been created and shaped by U.S. and European, particularly British, interest within Iran. Mm -hmm. Which all revolves around oil. Um, I mean, Iran has never been formally colonized, um, but... They were there. They were a sphere of influence between um, after World War One between the Britain, when British Petroleum had control over the oil in Iran and Russia, and then Russia pulled out after the um, 1917 revolution. Mm-hmm. So I guess it was before World War One. Sorry, mm-hmm. but so that influence sphere of influence um, continued throughout. Uh, till after World War II. And I mean, it's just worth noting here, and we're going to do a whole nother show about culture and art and just the, um, oh, I hate this word, but for lack of a better word in my head right now, the achievements of Iran. How, I mean, really, there were so many things that have come out of Iran that um, Iran has not been given the credit for. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so important, the um, importance of like scholarship and poetry within Iran and the history and, and how that has influenced the world, really. Absolutely. I mean, there's 4,000 years of history that we're talking about here, you know, from the Persian Empire, Darius, um, Cyrus, Xerxes, all of that um, as part of human history, right? Not just Iran itself or Persia, but but a part of all of us, really. Mm-hmm. Um and it, I mean, I don't think any radio show, the constraints would do it justice. But to really understand the, the depth and the length of um, the history that encompasses culture, economics and struggles um, in, in the human stage, right? In, mm-hmm. in the development of humanity as a whole. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's um, really interesting to me just in this broad stroke of the Western narrative on Iran is that Iran is our enemy mm-hmm. and and if you just think about just for a moment the demographics of Iran mm-hmm. that there are 82 million people like you said thousands of years of a rich and complex history there are 15 officially recognized ethnic groups mm-hmm. seven religious groups and there's 15 officially recognized languages yeah. so even just in that moment of understanding the um, diversity, I guess I would say, and the um, that there are many different Iranian peoples. How can we say that Iranian people are our enemy? Right, right. Yeah. Um, I mean, just to touch a little bit upon, uh, you know, as part of our study group, this concept of Orientalism, which was popularized by um, the Palestinian scholar Edward Said, um, is a book called Orientalism. The aspect of 
um, initially it was Napoleon going to Egypt and studying the subject, right? These people who are separated from the West and they're all Oriental, um, the other, essentially. Um, and it, and I, I wonder, right, for those of you who are listening, like if you were to take a pause and, and think about the images that exist in your mind about Iran, what mm. are they, right? Mm. What are the words and the images? And one thing that really stands out to me um, in popular U.S. culture is how Xerxes was portrayed in a very popular comic to movie 300. Mm. He was... Um, I mean, he was a great ruler of Persia who went to war against Greece. But because we um, associate ourselves with the Greeks, or we meaning, excuse me, the United States and <laughs> Europe, um, that Xerxes was like, he looked unhuman, inhuman. Um, and so those kinds of images that are just floating in our heads, right, about Iran, um, that... That really, again, goes back to sort of vilifying and othering and calling them our enemy. And and that's sort of the pathway to saying, okay, you know, our government's going to go to war. Okay, you know. Yeah, it, it's always the for what purpose. Right, right. You so. know, and um, something that I think is really important coming out of this idea of Orientalism and the othering, and this is kind of a side tangent, Um I used the word culture and I used it hesitantly and mm. I've been it's been something that I've been really um, trying to figure out for a little while now um, because I think through Orientalism and through other um, stereotyping and othering we've I identified this idea of culture in the United States mm. as the other only people outside of the United States have culture mm. and that we don't have culture mm. here in the U.S. And yeah. so when I use the word culture, it's really important for me to start breaking down mm -hmm. that supremacy yep. that exists. And part of it is because I don't like U.S. culture. <laughs> so I've always like wanted to avoid right. it. But right, right. For, um, for clarity in the words that we use, mm -hmm. that they also have a history and a context, mm -hmm. um, I think that's important. And it directly is connected with Orientalism. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, where would you like to Before go? we move on about Orientalism, can I just read a quote from Edward Said? That's, um, yeah. There's a reading um, that's part of the study group about Orientalism and the shaping of Iranian narrative mm -hmm. in the U.S. And so this quote, I thought, by Edward Said in his book, Orientalism, um, Orientalism can be discussed and analyzed as the corporate institution for dealing with the Orient, dealing with it by making statements about it, authorizing views of it, describing it by teaching it, mm -hmm. settling it, mm -hmm. ruling over it. Mm -hmm. In short, Orientalism as a Western style for dominating, restructuring, and having authority over the Orient. Mm-hmm. And it completely looking at, and I think it was in our reading about Orientalism, um, in that, you know, like if we looked at we meaning the United States and other Western nations, um, not just the United States, um, if the West looked at its own thinking about Iran, we would learn a lot more. Um, and I think that what he's saying really sort of neutralizes and flattens the, the long history 
history itself, but also the struggles within that history, right? Um, so after um, Britain and Russia sort of reached its influence over Iran, um, they put in, you know, a, whatever, a, a dynasty that that served the West, and there were uprisings, and they're all throughout um Iranian history, we see people rising up and wanting to get rid of sort of the Western dominance. Absolutely. Exploitation, really exploitation and, and accumulating the wealth. I think this is a perfect moment to go to a song break, Nina. Okay. We're going to play uh, Bella Ciao Iran, and we'll give the history of this song in a moment. listening to Indigo Radio on WVEW, Brattleboro's community radio station. We just heard Bella Chow, Iran, and our show today is based on Iran introducing the study group Brattleboro Solidarity is having Mondays in March from 6 to 8 at the Brattleboro Memorial Library. Email brattleborosolidarity at gmail.com to sign up. Um, And that song, Bella Chow, Iran, um, was sung after in 2009. This is 10 days after the campaign in which 85% of eligible Iranian voters all over the world came out to vote for their candidate, their favorite candidate, Musavi. And of course, we know that um, when there are 
imperialist interest involves, that also means that there are fraudulent elections. Um, so even though this history is new to me, the specifics of it with Iran, it's very familiar in the history of the world. <laughs> um, so the morning after, people were surprised by the election results because they, the person who should have won did not win. Um, and their votes were stolen. And so this led to um, a massive movement, I want to say, that's called the Green Movement. And the, the repression against the political activists was immense, where journalists were being um, expelled from cities, especially international journalists. There was a full riot police and security forces out on the streets trying to disperse the protesters and really intimidate them. And despite all of this, Iranians continued to come to the street and shout their freedom and ask for their vote. Uh, there were hundreds um, killed and thousands arrested. Mm -hmm. And one year after this, the protests still continued. Um, they were calling for asking for freedom and an end to religious dictatorship. And the um, pr the brutality of the police continued. You know, so this is just one example of um, a long history and a powerful history of Iranian dissent. Mm -hmm. um, and so we just wanted to mention a few other um, moments in which the Iranian people, not just moments, but movements within Iran for... Um, freedom mm -hmm. and the biggest one is you know the anti-imperialist movement yeah you know and i i don't know if you want to say a little bit nina about um the organ anti-imperialist organizing as you understand it within iran right um <clears throat> i mean i think how i understand it i mean at least let's say we go back to mossadegh i mean i there they were anti-imperialist. I mean, he nationalized the oil. Um, he wanted more social, you know, profit to go to people, right? Mm -hmm. um, for people to be able to live with good food and health and education. How dare he? Right. <laughs> um, and so, and of course, we quashed that very quickly. Um, and so, like... If you were a person in Iran and and here's the United States and all Western countries, you're like, democracy, democracy. Mm -hmm. And then you elect a person, right, who would potentially bring about what we would imagine as democracy. And then we go and quash it. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, even just that, I think, would at least it would lean me towards you know, being anti-American, mm -hmm. at least, but to be anti-imperialist as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that term anti-imperialist is the idea that no one is going to dictate what happens in your country. Right. And although the, uh, it seems clear to me that the Iranian people know that there are problems, like we just, the Green Movement was not about the U.S. per se. It was about the politics within Iran. Right. But overwhelmingly... People don't want U.S. intervention. Oh, no. And I think that's one thing that, that really sticks out in my mind about U.S. and Iran relations is 
because of the modernization under the Shah, right, mm-hmm. even though the Shah was not an ideal ruler, he modernized the country in terms of technologically and agriculturally, mm-hmm. production-wise, right, um, and economically. And so Iran has dared to assert its own sovereignty. And it, it really, that, I, I think that that's one of the... Um, reasons why the U.S., you know, clashes so mm-hmm. much with Iran. Um, so, yeah, you do remember the RAND report that came out in 2007, and this was the top seven countries that the U.S. wanted to invade, and and each one of them now has been invaded, but the common threat, oh, except for Iran, mm-hmm. except for Iran, I got to... The, the U.S. has invaded Iran in some ways through Iraq, but that's a whole yes. other complication. Yes. <laughs> um, but each of those countries, what they had in common was that they dared to stand up to the United States. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, so that's that's important to keep in mind um, that, you know, they're not just being defiant, just to be defiant, whatever, you know, that they are, Iran comes across as in the U.S. imagination, but that they are actually standing up and um and and that's to me that's a positive thing yeah absolutely and there's this idea in the united states that um i don't know what the term would be used but this idea of muslim rage as the Mm. it's because there's an inability this is the narrative that i disagree with just to be clear (laughs) but that there's people are angry because they are have the like they're not able to catch up with the west and they actually envy the West. Mm. And that came about from Bush in 2002 when he talked about the axis of evil. And they quote, his quote is, they hate us because of our freedoms. Mm. But in reality, we must look at the history of U.S. interventions in Iran to really understand why Iran has such a strong imperialist resistance. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And Iran is like technological, I mean technologically and productively quite advanced much like we are yeah so yeah nina can you talk a little bit about the 1953 coup and what happened there sure um i mean the details you know people can find through research but uh i mean just to back it up a little bit um the the shah that they um the british instated um prior to world war ii was removed because he sided with Hitler mm-hmm. during World War II. And then the Allies came in. And in essence, there was this sort of lib- sort of a liberal liberalism, um, meaning like people were experimenting in terms of like organizing in communist groups and organizing in different ways. Mm-hmm. So there was a, a, a sense of freedom, I suppose, in terms politically. And so this is where Mossadegh, came out of. They mm-hmm. elected him. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, I mean, within that whole liberal, you know, sort of organizing politically, um, there was that desire, as much of the, the global South wanted, of independence um, from the West and not, you know, the, the money that's, the surplus money from the oil in Iran going away to Britain. Mm-hmm. Um, and while the people uh, in Iran, you know, were starving and, and were just not well overall, right? So the money, bringing the money back. Um, so um, the U.S., at that point, you know, at World War II, as we know, the U.S. being the, the dominant um, 
imperialist hegemonic country left standing after World War II, they intervened. Um, and I think Britain had, had receded at that point because their power had receded. So the U.S., um, it was Teddy Roosevelt's grandson, Kirby Roosevelt, um, along with the British. Uh, but he was the one who orchestrated this whole protest against Mossadegh, which these people were paid mm-hmm. to protest, um, and they overthrew uh, through different means in that way, in very underhanded way. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they instated um, the, the shah, the, a different shah, who, again, was you know, taking accumulating wealth and sending wealth to, um, to the West and, and the people within the country suffering. So, yeah. And I think it's really important to note, I did not know this, that this was the first CIA coup. Oh, was it? Yeah. After that's, um, what is it? Uh, Guatemala, right? Yeah. It's the same year. Yep. Um, so this was the, I mean, that's like an importance to U.S. imperialism mm-hmm. that um, some of what they learned that they've repeated over and over again. In my head, I thought it, I thought the U.S. like really, um, a lot of these CIA covert operations, I think about Latin America, mm-hmm. but it's been happening all over the world. And um at least according to what I read earlier that, um, oh no, this is according to the video that we just listened to, mm-hmm. What Does Iran Want?, that this was the first CIA coup. Yeah. Um, but I also think it's important that the dominant narrative, again, is that the coup was about freedom, it was anti-communism, it was a, a part of the Cold War, and it wasn't about oil. Mm, no (laughs) and we actually know that now one of the documents that we're going to read for the study group is about um the um like not the cables because that's what's it's the term used now but the documents that were released that were released on public pressure because when the u.s Mm -hmm. the u.s has something called the foreign relations um of the u.s Mm -hmm. and where it's really interesting that after 30 years, they're required to release um, confidential memos and, and documents. Mm-hmm. But when they released the ones on Iran, they were missing a lot. Oh. And so after public pressure, um, they were finally released. And that's where um, you can read about from 375 documents mm-hmm. about all of the communications between the U.S. Embassy in Iran um, and the CIA and how they were really working for years to um, to stage a coup, mm-hmm. um, and that at the end of the coup, what did they make? The 1954 Oil Consortium Agreement, yeah. and this agreement in effect denationalized the industry and handed control over to the major Western oil companies. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, in in the U.S., there's this disdain for nationalized industries. But the reason why um, Mossadegh and other countries like Venezuela nationalize such thing as oil is because if it's privatized, it goes to a very select few elite group of people, meaning the profit from it, right? As opposed to the profit benefiting the general public through like providing health care and providing education, et cetera, et cetera. So um, just to be clear of what nationalization actually means yeah you know and it's also really interesting that um like most 
colonialists when they start to lose their power over their colonies, even though you said, you know, it's not wasn't formal, but at least in terms of oil, Iran was colonized by the mm. British. Absolutely. Um, and so when the, the oil was nationalized, Britain wanted compensation. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, and you could argue, OK, they put in the infrastructure, blah, blah, blah. Um, but they didn't want based on what it cost at the moment. They were making up imaginary profits for the future of what they would lose. You know, and it reminded me so much of France in Haiti. That's exactly what I was <laughs> thinking right now. I was about to say that. I was like, yeah, the the enslaved rose up and, and now France wants compensation. To this day, where they're still paying back debts in Haiti even after the earthquake, right? Yeah. So Mossadegh was like, was willing to talk about possible compensation based on the current value, but definitely not based on imaginary profits that would have left Iran in a state of bondage. Yeah. You know? And so Eisenhower said, we have to respect the enormous investments that the British have made, and we don't (laughs) want to break our um, relation with the British. And therefore, that was the justification for the coup. Right. And I mean, sticking to the... the topic of oil all the sanctions that have come after the 1979 um islamic revolution in iran Mm -hmm. has been about oil Mm. you know and and sanctions are horrific i mean we've seen it we see it in venezuela we've seen it in iraq right food doesn't get through medicine doesn't get through and for what purpose right who benefits from this? Yeah. And I think that um, we need a lot more time to dig into this. So maybe we'll go to a song break. But just worth mentioning right now, um, Iran has put in a lot of technology and infrastructure into nuclear energy. Mm-hmm. And regardless of what we feel about, th- or think about, not feeling, but think about nuclear energy, mm-hmm. that is an attempt to move away from oil. Yes. And they've been punished. Absolutely. Over and, and over again. And again, it's that 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 would have given them the sovereignty and not the bondage mm. to the U.S. or any other Western nation. Okay. So this song isn't per se about Iran, but I figured it was a good, the Washington Bullets by The Clash. Gotcha. Mama, mama, look there You children are playing in the street again Don't you know what happened down there? A youth of 14 got shot down there The cocaine guns are jammed downtown The killing clowns are blood money men Shooting flows Washington bullets again As every cell in Chile will tell The cries of the tortured men Remember when they in the days before Before the army came Remember Victor Hara in the Santiago Stadium. Those Washington bullets again. And in the Bay of Pigs in 1961, a banner for the Playboy in the Cuban sun. For Castro is the color, is a redder than red. Those Washington bullets won Castro Day. For Castro is a color. Spray of 
This is Indigo Radio on WVEW, Brattleboro's community radio station. You are with the hosts. I'm Becca, and we're with Nina. And um, we've been talking about Iran as a way to introduce Brattleboro Solidarity's upcoming study group, Mondays in March from 6 to 7, or 6 to 8, at the Brattleboro Memorial Library. We hope you'll join us, and you can email brattleborosolidarity at gmail.com. And so we're going to um, start talking. We're going to go into a little bit more of the 1979 revolution in Iran. And Nina, could you start us off just contextualizing what's hap- what was happening? Sure. Um, so the Shah had been in power for a while at this point. Um, and, and people were fed up. Right. So it's something that had been building. Um, and um, and in 1979, I mean, there were many, many groups. Right. But I remember um, Shirin Abadi. She won the Nobel Prize. She was like a human rights lawyer. I remember her saying that there were many voices at that time. But um, Khomeini's voice was the loudest. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, people were just like, well, we're just going to go with that. Um, without necessarily, um, maybe, maybe not necessarily seeing the consequences, um, of, of what would happen if Khomeini, uh, came to power. But it was a rallying point. It was, you know, it was anti-imperialist, anti-American. Um, and so there was a coup and obviously there was the um the hostage crisis and then of course there was that whole iran contra affair thing which oh, they we're have to go into a whole <sighs> bunch more of that in our next show <laughs> right but you know the hostage taking had um yeah little to do with a little bit to do with that the iran contra affair um and also the the uh bombing or i guess bombing out of the sky, a passenger airline. Um, so heartbreaking, I think. Um, so, you know, and, and that was just, re- that was the turning point. Um, and, and Iran at that point, right, because of the Shah and because of the modernization, like they had, again, uh, repeat the, the technology and the capacity, productive capacity to do, to be independent, you know, of sort of imperialist bondage. Yeah, absolutely. 
And also they have a long struggle for democracy and dignity Mm -hmm. from like the constitutional revolution in 1906, which was like a national sense of identity that was built up where, you know, and so each time that there's uprisings or movements, um, I find it um, very inspiring, I guess is the word, because here in the United States, we have such historical amnesia that each Mm -hmm. time a we do have uprisings yeah. that happen here, but they're never, they're hardly connected to the past. And so right. with Iran, it seems like everything's built up on top of each other, that they mm-hmm. have not forgotten the past, mm-hmm. but they keep on looking forward. Mm. Yeah. So we have a lot to learn from Iran. Yes. Um, as do we do from the rest of the world. <laughs> um, okay. I wanted to mention one more thing about the 1979 revolution. Um, when um, it was kind of, um, you know, because you've met, like you mentioned, there were so many different um, ideas of what the new country of Iran should look like um, from like communist to liberal, um, mm-hmm. I would say. Yeah. yeah. And so when Khomeini um, took over and made this, and it became more of an Islamic revolution, yes. it did not quell the struggle the struggles within the um movement as well and so one of the things that happened was um that women in iran almost right after the um khomeini took power they started their own um rebellion that continued was a continuation from um the 1979 revolution and they were fighting against women having the the forced wearing of hijabs. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they came out into the streets and demonstrated for days, and they did not leave the streets until the Ayatollah um, removed this law. Yeah. And their cry... So then as soon as the law was removed, they stayed in the streets Mm -hmm. because they said, okay, we're not stopping here. We want equal pay. We want equal voice. Mm -hmm. And the rallying cry became that freedom is not East or West. It's universal. Mm. Um, And so, again, it's like this idea that Iranians um, are going to build their own fate. They're going to build their own country and they're going to keep fighting within Mm -hmm. as well as having a view of the what's happening in the world around them. Yeah. I mean, one thing, as you talk about these different struggles, right? Um, I mean, going back to the early 20th century and and each of those struggles, right? I feel like the struggles, I mean, without going much into detail, right? It it creates... um, It creates something new. It creates new groups and it creates... And I think what I'm trying to say is that, you know, going back to sort of the tendency in sort of American patterns of thinking, I guess, is what I want to say, is to, is very black and white or whatever, red and white, um, different colors, right? It's, it's very polarized. That's, mm-hmm. that's what I want to say. It's mm-hmm. polarized, either evil or good. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this sort of vilification erases all of the complexities mm-hmm. of you know of the social changes that have been going on since since the 1979 revolution right the mm-hmm. the protest of 
women on the streets, um, the social welfare, decrease in mortality, um, decrease in fertility rates, growth in literacy, like all these things, right? That it's a complex mix and, and we need to step away from this polarized form of thinking and figure out why we think that way. Absolutely. So let's go to our final song. This is um, from Hitchkas and it's uh, hip hop direct from the streets of Tehran. And it was helped in part produced by cultures of resistance. and then we'll let you listen to the music. Yes. (laughs) Um, So again, the purpose of this show today is to educate ourselves about Iran in order to act in solidarity with the Iranian people and against U.S. imperialism. And so we're hosting, Brattleboro Solidarity is hosting a study group Mondays in March. Um, That's five Mondays. And the last session will be um, an act actions in in the local community or whatever the study group decides um it will be and i think it is important to note that this the all the readings that we're using can come from the catalyst project Mm -hmm. um and so they're anti-racist organizing collective in the bay area and so we're really grateful to them for putting together all these readings and being able to um, use them as a platform to study and act for ourselves Mm -hmm. absolutely um so please um if you are able to uh sort of rsvp just so we know how many people are coming please email brattleboro solidarity at gmail.com otherwise you're also just free to just show up um we'll start on the very first monday in march at the library and we'll be in the history room is that right yeah, there will be signs on the front door. Okay. I don't remember what the name is called, but it's when you walk up to the second floor, it's the glass room. It's the mezzanine, yeah. Mezzanine, the mezzanine, yeah. okay. Yeah. Cool. Um, and just a few other announcements um, of Spark Teacher Training Institute. On May, I almost said March, mm-hmm. May 8th 
and 9th. We hope that you will mark your calendars because we will be having a conference. Um, we had the Stand Up Fight Back conference last year and um, we had Rebel Diaz come and perform at the library. Mm -hmm. um, they will be coming again this year. The Rebel Diaz will be coming um, performing this year as well and giving a workshop and we have so many other wonderful people coming to talk about health and health systems, food systems, um, housing, housing, education, um, but also the Vermont um, Ethnic Studies Program. That'll be a part of our conference as well. So, that, yeah, and I think um, there will be a youth component mm -hmm. to the conference as well, um, so that youth voices are uh, primary focus, and yeah. um, that we really see all of these different aspects of society is connected yeah that we can't talk about health and education without talking about housing mm -hmm. um and so we really hope that you'll join us um because you know we're really trying to build build beyond just a conference but make this about um a larger resistance mm -hmm. within New England and beyond right. um, and so we're going to be inviting a lot of amazing people to come and speak and and also, you know, uh, we have a really awesome cohort of Spark graduates this year. Or they're not graduates yet. They're students. But uh, <laughs> the conference is in conjunction with their graduation. And so they'll be presenting their final um, projects. Yeah. Their, yeah, yeah, their final at, projects. At the um, conference as well. And so it's just a really, it will be a really dynamic weekend of education and learning and action and and art and connecting and um and building movement yeah yeah so yeah. let's go back to hip-hop direct from the streets in tehran okay and so just stay tuned um follow us on facebook um indigo radio and also we also separately have a brattleboro solidarity but we we post our radio shows so we'll have another show on iran um because hopefully a couple more coming up. oh yeah a couple yeah. more um so please stay tuned and um, enjoy the music and the rest of your weekend. Come on, let's go. 